the difference in lifespan could be 15 to 18 years between the richest and the poorest. I mean, this is not like miles away. You don't have to go overseas. I sometimes think to myself, people go across the world to do missions. You don't have to go across the world, just cross the highway in your city and you could be there and you'll be in a third world situation where people are living 15 to 20 years less than you are. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, innovators. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And today I am lucky enough to be joined by my friend, Dr. Zev Neuwirth. Zev, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Same here, David. Always great to speak with you. Yeah, I'm super psyched. I know this has been a long time in the making. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, could you just tell everyone a little bit about what you're up to now, your experience in a minute kind of dialogue there? Okay. You know, I think the bottom line is I went into healthcare over three decades ago, just wanted to be a doctor, trained in internal medicine. And although I was in absolute and continue to be in absolute awe of the people in the healthcare, the doctors, the nurses, the PAs, the technicians, the administrators. I mean, everyone is just so smart and so passionate and so mission driven. And the science and technology is just amazing. But what struck me almost from the beginning and has lasted now well over three decades is just this overwhelming sense of frustration because there's so much positive and so much good. And yet healthcare is one of those areas where the whole actually is far less than the sum of its parts. And in particular, we could dive into this if you want, but in particular, I was, I would say not just frustrated, but absolutely offended by the way that people get treated in our healthcare system. And by people, I mean patients and their families primarily. But also, as I started to move into my first career as a medical educator and attending physician, 
I was just shocked to see how doctors and other providers and nurses were treated in the system. And people now talk about burnout and moral injury. I was actually studying that back in the 1990s when I first recognized it in the late 1990s and early 2000s. And, and we could go in, into this in depth, but it's that sort of sense of, wow, there's so much good and so much possibility. And yet at the same time, the reality is so far behind Beyond the Walls, this latest book that I wrote, I, I really liken healthcare delivery that we've been in for the past few decades to the dark ages. And I'm going to stick with that story and I'm happy to debate anyone on that because we have been in the dark ages. We are in the dark ages. And the hopeful part, however, is that we have the opportunity literally right now to emerge out of the dark ages and to create a healthcare system and pass it on to the next generation that is so much better, that is really entering into what I would call an age of enlightenment. But that decision is one that each and every one of us in healthcare has to be aware of and make and be committed to. I mean, that's in a nutshell, the whole story. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot there to unpack. And I see, like part of your book, we talk about innovators and digital health and, and beyond. I saw in the news recently, you know, one of the executives at Intermountain was involved in this pharmaceutical project in Utah where they were going to be releasing an affordable insulin. And I know you touch on diabetes in your book, right? And just the impact that treating diabetes more effectively and or preventative care prior to people even getting diabetes, the impact that could have on the healthcare system, both from the disease itself, as well as the residual mental health effects that it has. But I just bring that up because I feel like there's room for people to come in and really disrupt things because there are ways to build profitable models where people are getting the care that they need at affordable rates and businesses, right? Because healthcare is ultimately a business, are doing well, right? Absolutely. Just to stay at a high level, we could dive in wherever you want to or double click wherever you want to, but there's so many issues in healthcare. But I, I think the overarching issue for me is this. And again, in the book, Beyond the Walls, I wanted to take a big picture perspective because it is really important to do that because we can go down lots of rabbit holes. The issue is that and this comes from years, as you know, years of my interviewing highly successful entrepreneurs and a new type of leadership in healthcare. And the formula, the strategy is really simple and unavoidable if we want to emerge into a better healthcare system. And the strategy is really this. It's one, we have to digitally enable healthcare. There's no way around it. We cannot do things in some sort of Norman Rockwell picture, you know, it, it just makes no sense and in terms of efficiency and effectiveness and safety and offloading routine stuff from doctor's plates and, and so that they can actually use their amazing knowledge and skill and make things convenient to people. So we have to digitally enable the other part of that. We have to couple that with a business model transformation, which is what you were just talking about as well. So it's the digital enablement, and that includes data enablement with the business model transformation. Those are the two tools. And 
those have to be in service of what I think you were talking about as well a moment ago, which is a humanistic cause, a consumerist cause. And I toggle between humanism and consumerism. I think it's a combination of both. I think there's a bit of overlap of those two. But I will say I will contrast those because I think what they have in common is far more than the difference. I want to contrast humanism and consumerism with what we have today in healthcare, which is racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, reductionism, industrialism, and classism. Those are the isms that dominate our healthcare system. And I'm suggesting that we use digital and business model transformation to supplant all those other isms with humanism and consumerism, some combination of that. And fundamentally, David, and I think the reason why you and I met and have gotten along so well is that fundamentally, this has to be led by humanism. And that requires what I would say is a new type of leadership. And I'm being very specific when I say leadership. I'm not talking about individuals or leaders. I'm talking about leadership, a new mindset, a new approach to leadership. Because the legacy approach right now, we have amazing people, but the leadership mindset is not what I just described. It is not a, a digitally enabled business model transformative, humanistic led leadership. And again, I, I don't mean that in any sort of critical way. I am just stating the obvious, right? And I mean, last time we had dinner, you mentioned like the word patient and the root of the word patient. I think you had brought this up or I looked it up after being to suffer, right? Patience or, you know, and the fact that that really stuck with me, like in going beyond the patient experience, how are we creating a human experience? And like people connotate consumer or customer experience in healthcare negatively because I don't know exactly. I've heard the argument. And to me, when I think about being a consumer or a customer of a healthcare provider, a doctor or what have you, if I could have the same experience that I have with Delta or Amazon with my healthcare provider, I would be a very happy camper. And honestly, I think that part of enabling more effective population health management and preventative care is engagement and personalized medicine. And you see that right now via various point solutions throughout the continuum of care. But it's like you said, it, it needs to be a top-down, almost like really revolutionized leadership to really lead, especially the larger systems in going down that path. David, I, I'm not sure it has to be top-down. And I think I understand what you mean by top-down. I think you mean it has to begin with leadership. And I agree with that. I wrote book number one, which was in 2019, after about four years or so of in-depth study of this emerging leadership. And that was a roadmap or how-to. I wrote book number two, which was the strategy. And that was after about seven or eight years. And now, quite honestly, what I turn to is this issue of leadership, because in the end, that's where it all starts. And I think that's what you were meaning by the top down. It all starts with leadership. And that doesn't mean that leaders have to be the CEO or the 
chairman of the board or on the C-suite. There are leaders all throughout healthcare, but we need leadership. And, you know, I want to, in terms of consumerism, I, I was having a conversation with one of the best chief consumer officers in healthcare in the country recently, and we had a long discussion about humanism and consumerism. And he said it really simply. He said, look, consumerism is really simple. It's identifying and meeting the needs of the person you're serving. It's really that simple, identifying and meeting the needs and making sure you've met them. And it's that sort of continuing question and curiosity. So it's never allowing yourself, and I think this was so critical, it's never allowing yourself to say, I know what they need, I know what they want, because that really can't be true because people want and need different things based on who they are, but also on the context. And so I think that sensibility that he talked about, other industries have really understood that their survival, if they're going to be around, if they're going to have people use them, that they have to identify those needs. Now, a lot of doctors, at least in the past, in my experience, because I've been talking about this for years, have said, listen, I'm not going to treat my patients like consumers. And I think it's well-intentioned, but I think they missed the point that consumerism actually is part of medical professionalism. I mean, your job as a doctor, and I used to teach, I used to train internal medicine residents, your job is to sit in front of that human being and figure out what their needs are and figure out what the best solution is to the best of your ability and then make sure that you do the best to, to deliver that to them. That is not that different than consumerism. And now the difference, I think, and this is where this issue of patient comes in and the limitation of, of the notion of patient. If you as a provider, a physician, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, if you as a provider of healthcare, if you think that your job is purely clinical, this is where the reductionism comes in. Then the person in front of you is no longer a person. You've limited them to a clinical entity. And then and your job is to solve that clinical entity's problem, as opposed to the realization that the individual, the entity in front of you is a human being. So that means they've got emotionality. That means they have a spirit. They have a sense of meaning and purpose. And in taking care of them and identifying their need, it's not just the clinical need, but it is that emotional need. It is that social need. It is that need in terms of even the existential need. And again, th that isn't rocket science. It, it isn't rocket science, but it is being very aware and intentional about, you know, who it is you're talking to and what their needs are and your role in that. And I, I think that's where, you know, again, I, I understand the sort of pushback on this issue of consumerism and, and there's no question there's downsides to consumerism. So I'm not saying that it should be 100% consumerism. As, as you and I've talked before, I tend to toggle between humanism slash consumerism. I think it's both. Yeah. And it's interesting too, based on what you're saying, I also think about the fact that engaging and promoting humanism and consumerism, for me, it opens up the door to how am I engaging with this individual while they're still well as they're 
healthcare advocate because when they're a patient, they're coming to me, there's something wrong and I'm treating them clinically, right? How am I engaging with them to promote their wellness? I think that consumerism and humanism open up the door for that. And in addition to that, what you mentioned also made me think about the kind of hierarchical relationship between doctor and patient. It's like I come to a doctor and I am subservient. It's a very vulnerable position. We all know that, right? But like in general, it's very like you're at the will of the doctor. So, and of course, this is a well-studied, well-earned position and not discounting any of that. But I feel like it's one of the only positions of that stature in the world that has that same I'm thinking of a lawyer, I guess that's similar, but it's different. You know what I mean? It's just some of the things that I've brought up in my head. And I think a lot of physicians in particular understand this. And I did talk about this in Reframing Healthcare a bit. As a patient, you're not coming as a regular customer. And I think this is where the humanism is important here. Customers generally are, they're healthy. They're coming in to get some service or product or whatnot. As a patient, you're often not feeling well and you're debilitated in some way. And whether it's emotionally or physically or both, you're not at your best, let's put it that way. And then as you put it, there is this, just this sort of natural hierarchy. You walk in, it's the office, it's the medical center, it's the white coat. There's the expertise versus no expertise. So there is an imbalance. And I think being sensitive to that, and my own experience is a lot of doctors are super, super sensitive about that and try to really level that playing field. But on the other hand, it is, I'll tell you, even my own experience, I go to the doctor, and, right? And no one's immune from any of this, by the way. It's the one thing I've learned, and I've done a lot of book signings lately. It is remarkable to me. But the overwhelming response I get after people hear my talks and they come up to me, and these are people who have been in healthcare for 10 to 30 or more years. Some of them are in high positions and organizations in terms of the level and role. And the common theme is it doesn't matter. Once you're a patient or your family's a patient, the most part, unless you're like super famous or world famous or like incredibly wealthy, you just get in line and there's very little you can do about the system. It is just overwhelming. When I go to see the doctor or I'm in healthcare, I mean, I almost, like many other people, I feel apologetic. I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to waste your time. You're the doctor. This is an expensive emergency room or an expensive office or expensive this or that. And it is this sort of bizarre sense of kowtowing to this large system, which is such a bizarre phenomena because I've not experienced it in any other facet of my life. I'm not sure I can even explain it, but I think that's what we have to combat. And that's why... You know, far from being an imbalance, I think we have an imbalance right now and consumerism and humanism is the only way we're going to solve it. 100%. So I want to dive a little deeper into beyond the walls, but, you know, before I do, I just want to say for anyone who's interested, Zeb also has his own podcast, right? Creating a new healthcare. I've listened to it. I love it. Amazing guests. It's been running for quite a few years now. So I just want to shout out that. And I also want to say, Sev, your original book, right? And I've told you this, but Reframing Healthcare was part of the impetus for focus on, on the healthcare industry. I'd worked in healthcare for a number of years, but after I read that book, 
I just saw the writing on the wall. And now I would say 80, 90% of the work that we do is in healthcare. And your book had a, a large part of our motivation in, in doing that. So I'm incredibly grateful for all of your hard work. And the most recent read, Beyond the Walls, was fantastic. You just really brought home a lot of things that, that I had been thinking about. So I, I just want to, I want to start by just talking a little bit more and we kind of delved into it a little bit, but about your motivation for Beyond the Walls. You know, you, so you wrote Reframing Healthcare and then, and you touched on what Beyond the Walls was meant to be, but maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about your inspiration and motivation. Yeah. And it's funny because I've now heard others say the same thing once they've read the intro to the book or the preface to the book. I got this sense in terms of being in healthcare that it was almost like a groundhog day. We were just redoing and redoing, same thing year out, year in across the country. And I've heard this from so many people now. And what started to really increasingly frustrate me was, you know, and I've been in healthcare now again over 30 years, despite all the amazing people and everything we have going for us, when you look at the reality of where we are, whether it's quality and safety, whether it's affordability, whether it's access, whether it's equity or inequities and disparities, whether it's this issue of burnout, whatever numbers you want to look at, pick one, anyone, right? We are bad and getting worse. And that's what struck me three or four years ago. I just saw this happening. I was like, how can this be? How can our longevity in the United States of America be decreasing? How can, and these are some recent stats, but how can, and this has been going on now for short three or four years, that longevity is decreasing. How can infant mortality be increasing in the United States of America? And yet it is. I, I think we may be the only developed nation in the world in which infant mortality is actually rising. How can it be that disparities in care in every great city in this country, the difference in lifespan could be 15 to 18 years between the richest and the poorest? I mean, this is not like miles away. You don't have to go overseas. I sometimes think to myself, people go across the world to do missions. You don't have to go across the world, just cross the highway in your city and you could be there and you'll be in a third world situation where people are living 15 to 20 years less than you are. And so you look at all these stats, by the way, people take it for granted that quality and safety is a done deal in this country, far from it. Some of the reports that have come out recently of studying the British Medical Journal uh, uh, with over 22 million hospital discharges, 22 million hospital discharges studied showed that somewhere around 800,000 serious errors occur in American hospitals every year. And by errors, that means errors that lead to permanent disability or maiming of people or death. That's 800,000 a year. I mean, that number, I can't even fathom what that means to individuals and their families. And so on and on and on. And so I saw this writing on the wall and it just became so, it's just such a burden to carry. I thought we have to stop doing what we're doing. We need a new strategy. And so I wrote down the strategy that I saw these exceptional people doing. And by exceptional, I mean, they were exceptions to the rule. They were not going the way of the many. They were taking a different path. 
And so I wrote that strategy down because it's not a fun thing to have. Right now we are, and I didn't make this up, we are in an existential crisis and it's multiple crises in our healthcare system. And where we're heading could be really catastrophic. And I think catastrophic in a pandemic-like way and maybe even worse. And I don't think people understand the reality of the situation. And my approach in the book, because you've read the book, that I don't actually talk about any of this in the book, which is the most amazing thing. I talk about what we need to do in the book because I feel that's That's one of the the things I love about it because it's very solution-oriented. It's not just like, hey, these are all the issues, which I've seen time and time again. It's like, these are practical things that we can be doing to move through this, right? It's funny, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to go to DC. I forget if we talked about this or not, but I spoke and collaborated with a number of folks at the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine on a forum to discuss follow-up care for traumatic brain injuries. So you you talk about that 800,000 number. Part of that number inevitably is folks that have had traumatic brain injuries that don't have any, you know, necessarily any immediate symptoms following that acute incident and they get discharged and they float out into the ether because these issues start occurring and they're much less apt to follow up with the healthcare provider themselves because some of them, some of the issues impact their cognitive functioning, some affect their emotional state and they just, they're untethered, right? So beyond the walls, engaging with humans and consumers in their home throughout their like journey of life, right? That when I think about what healthcare should look like, you know, I want to be this partner in care from when a child is born to the moment they pass and how am I helping promote their wellness and really keep a hand on their back throughout the journey of life. That's like the polyuna vision I have for it, but there are practical steps that we can be taking now to get closer to that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is interesting. We see healthcare systems across the world that have far less money, but they do what you just said, which is they realize it's that sort of someone else helping us navigating the system, informing us, this is what is available to you. This is what you should be doing now to promote your health. And we don't have that. In fact, it's interesting you talk about traumatic brain injury because one of the people that came up to me in a book signing about a month or two ago at a large conference was someone who had been in healthcare for probably over tw- well over 20 years and knew what she was doing. She really was a professional with a lot of experience in, in the healthcare industry. And she had a traumatic brain injury from a skiing accident. And very much to your point, but exactly what you were talking about, She said, the thing that really shocked her, and this is someone who knows healthcare inside and out. She said, the thing that shocked her was that she had to put her own medical team together. There was no one who could say, you need these five or six different people. Let's get them together. Let's coordinate your care team. Let's integrate your care. Let's make sure we're doing the right thing. No one did that for her. And she had to, with traumatic brain injury herself, she had to get out of bed, deal with her own issues, and organize her own health care. And she said it took her two years. She said a year and a half to two years 
to put the team together, to get everyone she needed. And then she was in charge of her team, which is ridiculous. And on top of the fact that she had traumatic brain injury and she was organizing it, creating Excel sheets, following her own data, sharing the data, integrating the team. It's just such a, a small story that paints the big picture of what's missing in healthcare. And, and you're right, it's a pretty simple concept. And I think, again, to do it, we need to do the things I outlined in the book, which is we need digital. You know, this cannot be done with paper and pencil and even our current electronic medical record system as it is. It needs digital enablement and it needs a business model transformation so that the system has a viable, sustainable way of doing that. And in, it, in its purpose is, its cause is, call it what you will, humanism, consumerism. But that's, you know, I, I'm telling you, it's really shocking to me that when we put our hats on as healthcare people, whatever you are in healthcare, you have a hat and then you have this mindset that is just like you march forward in the traditional way. The minute you take that hat off and you're a regular person, you're a patient, it's a whole different mindset and what it's like. And it's, it's really, I'm hoping that it doesn't take every healthcare leader and employee to have to be a patient to figure out that we have to change the system. I don't believe that it will take that, but it almost seems to me like until you experience it, it's very hard to have that sort of inner gut feeling that the system has to be fundamentally changed. Yeah. I will say that I sense more of a shift now in this moment in time today. You know, there's exponentially more momentum today than there was even two, three years ago. Now, I, I will say that a lot of it is, I, I believe, kind of self-serving to a certain extent in that if health systems in particular do not make these changes, they will go the way of the dinosaur, right? They will not be able to remain competitive, profitable, and so on if they don't engage in certain you know, changes in digital enablement and otherwise. That said, there's a ton of opportunity you know, a simple use case too that I see a lot of is just like with in trending towards personalized medicine, right? Like I'm how old am I? 37, you know, year or two, I'm gonna be needing a colonoscopy, right? That is included in my insurance, right? And it's with a copay, right? But it's it's something that is it's preventative care. I'm pretty sure it's annual. And if my healthcare provider has my age and they have all my information and their single source of truth, they can engage with me in a more personalized way and they can educate me. And things like that are simple ways to promote preventative care and also book more appointments for the system or the healthcare provider themselves. So as we ship, those are just some of the like basic changes that absolutely should be happening, creating more personalized experience for patients, in my opinion. Totally agree. And yeah, I, I think you're right. As we get further and further into what I have been starting to call the darkest hours of American healthcare, we're in it already for sure, but we're going deeper and deeper into that zone. I think that folks are realizing, including leadership across the board, we have to do things differently. And some are further ahead than others, no question about it for various reasons. But I, I think you're right. There is a greater momentum. The, the issue, and again, when you, when you asked why I wrote this second book, because it's, uh, it's a lot of work to write a book, 
I think the reason that the, the compulsion for me, what compelled me to write it was, okay, but what do I do? Right. That's the question that everyone asks. What do I do? And my answer now is here's the strategy. Here are numerous examples of individuals and organizations that are following the strategy. This is how they've done it. I, I can't give you your exact recipe or your exact formula because it's everything's contextual, but we could adapt it to your situation. But there is an overarching approach that you have to adopt and then you could adapt it to your specific situation. And so I do think we need to move faster and bigger. And at least in my opinion, as I'm observing things, the issue of affordability and disparities in particular, I think these issues have, they have ramifications that go beyond healthcare. In fact, I'm certain of that. I don't think that's a new concept. When people can't afford basic healthcare, when people don't have access to it, when people are seeing that they are dying at a much younger age than others because of their color of their skin or because they don't have as much money. Th these things, I mean, you, you sense of disenfranchisement becomes pretty significant and it's understandable. And I think we're seeing that in this country. And so healthcare has the hope, the possibility of really being part of the solution, if you will, rather than being part of the problem. And I think that's really what you've asked me a number of times, why do you do this? And I think fundamentally that's it. I, I see the bigger picture of health and healthcare and how it's connected to a wonderful society. I love that you bring that up too, because and I've talked about my mom's nonprofit, the Center for Great Expectations, plenty of time on the podcast. But when I think about addressing societal disparities and things like that. These are individuals that have experienced significant trauma, right? Generational trauma. And these teens, their children, adults, how do I expect them to get out of this cycle without the right care, right? The right care, right? Because there, there's, for example, if that individual is suffering from addiction, right? And they go to a treatment facility, you know, they detox, they attend some meetings and you know, hear some of the message, but then they get sent back right to where they were before with the same triggers, the same trauma. I mean, it's very hard for an individual to get out of that cycle, right? So how am I lifting them out of that and providing training on life skills, how to be a parent when they were never parented? right? Or loved supportive housing to get them out of that situation. And the, I see it breaking cycles of crime, poverty, and addiction, and really starting to address those disparities. And you mentioned infant mortality, that as well. But a lot of people, like when they think of changing the healthcare system, that aspect of it, right, isn't even like on the radar per se, but I'm excited the center is starting to integrate into primary care now. And I really hope that's part of this because I think that it will start to help with some of those disparities that you're mentioning. Yeah, it's wonderful listening to you talk about your mother's work. I think again, it just, I have to smile because there's so many people doing such good work and there's so much opportunity at the present moment and more opportunity to do more work. I just, it's really hopeful. I'm glad you mentioned it because for me, that's the important thing. And this is why, uh, despite the fact that I've been laying down some harsh realities in this conversation, at the same time, there's so much good that's happening. And 
I find personally and professionally that when I focus on the positive, it generates more positive. It's like, oh, someone is doing that. Can I do that? Or can I adapt that to what I'm interested in, in the part of the world that, that I'm interested in, in helping to fix and make better? And so it's a very generative, positive cycle and spiral that, so thank you for sharing the story of your mother. You've shared it with me before, and I, I love it every time I hear work your mom's doing. Thank you. Thank you, Zeb. This has been amazing. I've read all your books. You know, we're friends now. I didn't know exactly what to expect, but this dialogue has been fantastic. We're almost out of time. I have a question I always like to end on. Before that, any actionable recommendations or closing thoughts that you would want to leave folks with surrounding beyond the walls or just in general? Yeah, picking up what I said, I, I think it's easy to feel like you can't make a difference and like, what can I do? That is the number one question I get asked or I've been asked since the publication of the book, you know, but what can I do? And I, I'm hoping that these conversations that we're having, the writings, the actions themselves, I, I hope that it gives people not only just inspiration, but also a, a direction and opens up some opportunities for people to say, oh, I can do this or I could join that or I could start this. And so I, I think we need to, you know, I just, I'm putting out a podcast tomorrow, which is going to be really interesting. And I actually think it's startling. And in it, I say we, we can't be silenced. Silence is whether it's from apathy or acquiescence, you know, silence is death. Silence is our biggest enemy. And I think anything you could do in terms of, you know, in a, I would say, peaceful way, in a positive way, constructive way, anything you can do to even writing your senators or going to volunteer, it's just, I think it, it builds on itself. And I have to say, it's a lesson I remind myself of all the time. So uh, this has been great. The, the last question I like to just always ask my guests is, if you could go back 5, 10, 15 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I would say, don't be afraid of voicing and acting on your core commitment. I love that. So cool. Zeb, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh my God, David. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Love talking to you. Absolutely. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We will catch you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.